You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hi everybody and welcome. I'm Morgan, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new uh, and a Christian, I would never spoil the wordle. <laughs> Listen, I did, I, was, I did it one time. <laughs> Listen, I'm sure if you try hard enough and you focus, you'll get today's. Anyway, all right. Uh, anyway, hey, uh, glad you're, uh, you're here with us today. You braved the time change and the spring break and South by and all that, and you're just still here, so you're, you're amazing. Hey, one thing real quick before we get going. A couple of weeks ago, if you were here, you remember that we received an offering for our churches in Ukraine uh, to, to deal with the growing humanitarian crisis. Just wanna give you a quick update on that and where your money is going, uh, with, along with a number of other churches in our Every Nation family. Family, we're able to contribute towards the purchase of four Volkswagen vans uh, to give to the churches there. This post, it's a really cool story. Uh, we got the money to our, our pastor in Madrid. Uh, Pedro Alonso is his name, his wife Natalie's Facebook post there. Um, an update for our, our, our spiritual family. Uh, and so we got the money to, to Pedro. I believe he flew to Krakow where he was able to purchase uh, the four vans there. And the, the, the gentleman, large man in the middle is Pastor Igor, pastor of our church in Lviv. Uh, and standing there with one of the vans, uh, Pedro drove and the crew drove those four vans over the border into Ukraine to give to that church to transport refugees and humanitarian supplies. So really cool. Thank you for giving and being a part of that. Uh, Listen, when you give, your money always makes a difference and it's especially nice to see it in some specific ways uh, like that. Uh, Glad to be with you. We're in a series today where we're looking at how the gospel in Romans 8 makes us better than we began. Coming up to our next to last week in the series, the second of three themes Paul sort of closes the chapter with. And I'd like to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, actually one more time to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word today. I like this quite a lot. And if you were still sort of sleepy, well, this gives you one more moment to get awake. All right, here we go. Uh, 28 through 32. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those. Yeah, you can read it. Cool. Uh, those who love him. It's a group, group experiment today. All right. Actually, let's start over. How about this? We're going to be a little more formal. It's all good. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, so along with him, graciously give us all things? All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Back on June 17th, 2020, we're remembering where we were in 2020, June 17th, right? June-ish. Remember that was like, what you felt like, where you were maybe, picturing what life was like, June of 2020. The University of Chicago published this study with this headline, 
said this, quote, survey, American happiness reaches 50-year low. Not good. Now, flash forward to almost two years later, this came out just a few weeks ago from Gallup. American happiness hits record lows. So 2020, record lows of happiness. 2022, Lower, that's right, lower. Uh, And that article said this on CNN. It said, in 2020, before the pandemic began, an average of 48% of Americans said they were satisfied. That's the term for happy. There was a big drop in 2021 when 41% indicated they were happy. And this year, just 38% of Americans say they're satisfied, happy. The General Social Survey has been asking Americans since 1972 whether, all things considered, they're very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy, so high, middle, low. The percentage who said very happy, the high, outran the percentage who said not too happy, that's the low. And every poll taken before the pandemic. Now there is a record low. Right now, these numbers are just downright depressing, no pun intended. Now, that might not be you. I sure hope it's not. Hope it's not you. You wouldn't answer it like that. But whether or not this is you is not my point. My point is not this is you. My point is, this is us. This is us. As Americans, this is us. And of course, I'm not talking about the Pearsons on the NBC TV show. Some of you might watch. All right. Anyway, Google it. This is us. Later, not now. (laughs) I'm not your permission giver. Be on your phone. Record levels of unhappiness right now, and yet, somehow, Jesus Christ, around a table with his closest friends the night before he was betraying and eating his final meal on earth, he says to them, quote John 15, I have come that your joy may be made full. Another translation puts it like this, I've come that your joy may be complete. And a chapter later, chapter 16, he says, you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And he says this to a group of men who would suffer and die and lose everything for him. And that's remarkable. Of course, I know technically speaking, we can define joy and happiness differently, you know, sort of slice that differently. Maybe we should, but I'm thinking here, my point is that if Jesus said our complete joy is possible at every single moment, then surely happiness is possible right now. I think it is. And so I'll go so far as to say Romans 8 says it's possible. In the middle of suffering, we're going to see. At the height of suffering, it's going to show happiness is possible. Before we begin, one little caveat. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be sad. I'm not saying it's bad to be down or immoral somehow. All I'm saying is that happiness is possible right now. Okay, how? Let's see, three remarkable reasons why a Christian specifically can be happy. And these three reasons, I want to tell you, are deeply meaningful for me. They actually hang on a canvas Carrie made for me, hangs in my office. And these three reasons have been, in some of my darkest moments, a light when all other lights have gone out. Three reasons today why a Christian can be happy. Number one, it's because your bad things will turn out for good. Number two, because your good things can never be taken away from you. And number three, because your best things are yet to come. 
All right, let's go number one and see why this is true. Number one, your bad things will turn out for good. Here we go once more, Romans 8, 28. Paul writes this, read it with me once more. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Three things about this, what he's saying, what he's not saying, and why he's saying it. What's he saying? First, let me set it up like this. I think, I was thinking about this, I think if I had been one of those first followers of Jesus, if I'd been one of those first people following him, maybe even from a distance, and if I had been there on the day he was crucified, if I'd have been there the moment he was uh, crucified, executed, hanging on, dying on that Roman cross, I think I might have despaired, like his disciples did. Because everything that was good in the world was killed. Beauty, justice, power, mercy, healing, love, miracle worker, supernatural healer, the one we believed was going to rescue us, was killed. So I'm not sure I would have believed if you had told me that anything good could have come from seeing a travesty of justice, what appeared to be a senseless murder. How could any good come from that? And yet, we know, not only did good come from that, but because of that, the greatest good in the history of the world came from that. Out of the greatest evil and bad came the greatest triumph and victory, and that's what Paul's doing here. He's keeping one eye back on the cross, the tomb, the resurrection, and saying the greatest good in the history of the world came from that, all right? And surely, if God can do that, he can work every lesser evil in the world, in your life, for good. That's what he's saying. But notice here what he's second not saying. He does not say, well, if you're a Christian, bad things won't happen to you, right? Like you've got some like Christian force field around you in life or something. No, I think for a bit, it's important to say this because I think for a good bit there, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, the church kind of got worked up with a little bit of maybe a lot of Christian triumphalism. We heard a lot of times that if you're really good, if you really love God, bad things would not happen to you. Again, but if bad things did happen to you, if you suffered, if you were sad, then surely it meant, you know, God didn't love you. You know, you hadn't been trusted God enough, like there was something wrong with you. Apparently, for like 30 years, we didn't read the book of Job. It's resources for this kind of stuff. We didn't even read the rest of Romans 8, where Paul asks, shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, even violence keep us from God's love? Listen, Paul makes this list because those were the bad things that happened to him. So please don't think he's saying bad things won't happen to you right here. No. But why can he say this? That's what he's saying, what he's not saying. Why, though, can he say this? He's saying this because there is actually... A specific good God is bringing about promises to work through your bad things. Maybe you've heard the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a Christian writer and speaker, also a quadriplegic. Lost the use of her arms and legs in a diving accident at the age of 18. Spent decades in a hospital in a wheelchair. Now a writer, thinker, author. And she describes her daily existence like this. We're going to read it in an article she wrote just last month entitled, Paralyzed and blessed, my unlikely path to happiness. 
It's a little longer. Hang with me. She said, quote, when pain jerks me awake at night, I first glance up. If the digital display on the ceiling says only the second watch of the night, I push through the pain and try to breathe my way back to sleep. But if the clock says 4 a.m., I smile. Jesus has awakened me to enjoy communion with him, even though it'll be hours before I sit up in my wheelchair. Do I need more sleep? Of course. Will my pain subside? Unlikely. But at four in the morning, there is a more necessary thing, and it makes me happy to think that long before dawn, I am among the early ones who are blessing Jesus, filling my chest with Jesus, rehearsing his scriptures, murmuring his names, whisper singing hymns that cascade into one another, all filled with adoration. It's hard to do that when you're wearing an external ventilator. And so I wordlessly plead that he unearth my sin, fill all my cavernous empty places and show me more of his splendor. He always responds with tenderness. He sees me lying in bed paralyzed and propped with pillows, encumbered by a lymphatic sleeve, wheezing air tubes, a urine bag and hospital railings that hold it all together. One of my helpers knows all about these nighttime rendezvous with Jesus. And so one night after she tucked me in, she stood over my paralyzed frame with an open Bible. This is you, she said, and then read Psalm 119, 147, 148. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. That pretty much describes it. In the morning when a different helper draws the drapes, unhooks my ventilator, drops the guardrails, removes the limp sleeve, and pulls out my mini pillows, she'll usually ask, sleep well? I'll say, not the best, but I am so happy. Happy. Why can she say she's happy in the middle of what looks like a really bad thing in her life? Romans eight twenty nine. the next verse. For those, because God foreknew those, these he's talking about. He also predestined to be conformed to, guess what? The image of his son. Paul saying God is working all the things in your life towards one great goal, being like Jesus. Being like Jesus. The Greek word here for conformed is morpha, where we get our word metamorphosis. Paul is saying God's promising to metamorphosize us, make us as beautiful, as loving, as content, as grace-filled as his, his son. Jesus, Paul is promising for the Christian. The specific good God has in mind here is that the bad things can make you more like Christ, who is, by the way, again, full of joy, never has a bad hair day, who's always courageous and steady. Wouldn't you want to handle life like Jesus? I would, I do. All right. Listen, you can't bring this good thing about on your own. Only God can. This is not the natural order of things, which means that when your bad things work out for good, it means that's because God has done that for you. In other words, number one, you can be happy because you know, you know your bad things can make you better than you began. Number two, number two though, your good things also, and second reason you can be happy today, your good things can never be taken away from you. Take a lot of stuff from you, but these good things can't. Let me give you at least two things in this passage, two good things that I think, and Paul is saying, can never be taken away from you. Here's the first. Lots more, got time for two. Paul says that God, again, conforms us, metamorphosizes us into being like Jesus so that, here's the reason, that he, 
Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Paul here is picking up on a theme he introduced earlier in the chapter. He's reminding you that if you are a Christian, you're part of God's family forever. You have been, this is his word, not mine, adopted as a child of God. Why is this so powerful? Carrie and I have some friends. I'll tell you a little story here. Some friends, we'll call them Johnny and Janie. Uh, And Janie had become pregnant by Johnny before they were married. Janie was a pastor's daughter uh, in a large church, so it was, you know, it was a little bit challenging there, no question, but the church was amazing, rallied around them, embraced them, supported them, and at the, at the advice and counsel of their friends and family, Johnny and Janie got married. A few years later, they had a second child together, and one day, though, Janie's sister, we'll call her Donna, none of these are their names, Donna was working in an orphanage in Ethiopia and told her sister and brother-in-law a story that would change their family for forever. Donna told them the story of two little children named Abe and Hannah, right? Abe was six years old at the time and Hannah was one. As best they could tell from Abe's accounts, their biological mother was a witch doctor by the based on the way she combed her hair. And when she became angry with him, she attached a razor blade to a stick and would beat him and slice him repeatedly. One day at the height of one of her incantations, she pushed Abe into the fire and it burned the inside of his leg horribly. But as it turned out, when they saw the scar, his leg wasn't just scarred from the fire because as his leg would begin to heal, the mother would come back along and scrape the new flesh off over and over. Little one-year-old Hannah was so neglected, she would scream so loud, so malnourished, lay on the floor and scream. Abe would cover his ears and hide. And one day they both woke up to discover that the mother was gone. She had abandoned them. What does little six-year-old Abe do? Well, he gets a rope, he ties his one-year-old sister on his back, and goes out into the streets, going from church to church, looking for help. One of the churches calls the police. They figure out what's going on. They get them off the streets and they take them to the orphanage where Janie's sister, Donna, had relocated, moved half a world away to serve some folks in need. And so Donna shares Abe's and Hannah's plight with Johnny and Janie back in America. They remember what it was like to feel alone, but then embraced in their moment of vulnerability and need and their hearts felt compelled to adopt these two little children. So they go through the process of raising tens of thousands of dollars to pay for two international adoptions. It's approved. And now for months, Johnny and Janie begin to send pictures of themselves to Abe and Hannah overseas until they can get there. there. Finally, the day has come. Come on, the price has been paid. Bring them home. They travel farther than they've ever traveled just to get their children. And when Johnny came, the dad walks into the room of the orphanage, this big dude, he walks into the room. You know what little Abe does? He ran across the room. He threw his arms around the man and said, Daddy, Daddy. Yeah. Yeah. He had only seen a picture, but his heart knew. And he ceased in the moment to be an orphan. He had been adopted. Paul writes, when you become a Christian, this good thing, your adoption into the family of God with a new daddy, a new father, is yours forever. Your good thing, your adoption, your membership in the family of God can never be taken away from you. 
to be happy about that, but that's not all. Because at this same moment, the moment you're adopted, something else happens. Paul names it in this next verse. Verse 30, it says, and those he predestined, okay, he called, or part of the family of God, those he called, here's the word, he justified. Christians call this the doctrine of justification by faith. What's this? One of my grandfathers, maternal grandfather, was a highly decorated uh, Korea and Vietnam veteran. Fought in both wars. And in Korea, as a young man, lieutenant, he was shot trying to take a hill. Uh, but he kept going, uh, bleeding with a bullet in him, and until he was, she shielded one of his own men from a grenade. Used his body. And the, the shrapnel from that paralyzed him from a waist down. Falls. He played dead when the enemy came by to bayonet the bodies. Thankfully, in a way, uh, his, his soldier that had died fell on top of him, covered his own body. He was rescued, drugged back to safety. Then he and his platoon were covered, discovered again, but he held their position all night down in a bunker by calling down fire on their own position all night until his platoon could be rescued in the morning with shrapnel on him with a bullet paralyzed. For this, he received a, president, uh, a citation for the president and a silver star. But he never talked about this. We saw the medal and stuff, but never talked about it until his 50th wedding anniversary just a few years before his death. But at least we knew this story about his combat in, in Korea. But what we didn't know about was something that we only discovered until after he passed, after he died. When he passed away, we discovered somehow in his drawer two more combat medals for service in Vietnam, not as a lieutenant, but as a colonel. He just told us he oversaw a computer facility there. What he's really doing, we'll never know, but he was awarded multiple more medals for bravery in Vietnam. And when he died and was prepared to be buried, it was in his, of course, his full dress uniform as a Marine. And all his medals for bravery, courage, selflessness pinned to his chest. Now imagine. Imagine that if at his funeral, and I was there, someone our family had known to be a deserter arrived. What if there were someone who came to his funeral who we knew had deserted him in his moment of need and caused his injuries and caused the death of the men in his platoon and this man had run away on the battlefield and betrayed them all? How would we feel? How would you feel if that were your family, your family member, and you saw that person there? Now imagine this. Imagine if my grandfather, if this was your position, yours, before he passed, knew this could happen, knew this man was still alive and said, if that man comes, here's what I want. I want what I deserve to pass to him. I want you to forgive him. I want you to pardon him. I want you to treat him as if he had never done that to me. And as a matter of fact, even more than that, I want my record, all my medals pinned to my chest to be put on him. Let my deserving record pass to the one who does not deserve it. He said, well, that wouldn't be fair. I know. Especially if you're from military background, he said that would be offensive. I know. You understand, though, that's what the gospel is. It's an offense. It's not fair. It's, that's what grace is. Grace means that the one who does not deserve the honor, the new record, that one gets it, see. What another one has earned passes to you. That's what it means to be justified, to be given what you don't deserve, treated though you deserve condemnation, treated now with honor, respect, forgiveness, and dignity. See, our, Paul's saying our justification, 
our good thing, our status before God can never be taken away. I could go on here in Romans 8 because it's not just your adoption. It's not just your justification. You've got the Holy Spirit being given to you, the membership now in the family of God, the living word of God we have, the Bible passed down, preserved through ages. These good things and more can never be taken away from you no matter what happens. No matter how bad your gas prices get. Come on. Paul isn't done, no. Because it doesn't just say you can be happy because your bad things will work for good. Nor can he say that your good things will never be taken away from you. That's why you can be happy. But no, he saves the best for last. Because he actually shows you the best reason of all you can be happy today is number three. Because your best things are yet to come. Look at the end of verse 30 goes on. He finishes with this unique verb. Not only we justified ultimately something else. Please read this with me. And those he predestined he also called. Those he called he also justified. Those he justified he also glorified. This is odd because every commentator you'll ever read will point out that Paul has just put something about your future in the past tense. To catch that glorified, what I mean is this. If you're reading, if you just read Romans 8, if you're listening to me right now, you have not been glorified. <laughs> Everything else, that's already happened. Predestined, called, justified, all that. You have not died in this life. You have not passed on into glory. Well, you will receive a new body. Every tear will be wiped away. You're not shining yet with the glory, the brilliance, the weight of God's glory for forever. By definition, if you're sucking air, this has not happened to you. And yet Paul writes as if it has already happened. He says, you have been glorified. He's just that confident about the eternal status of a Christian forever, the presence of Almighty God. Now, two things I don't want you to think. First of all, Paul is trivializing, or I'm trying to trivialize anything you're going through, human suffering now, like saying it's no big deal, not what Paul is saying. Once more, please remember who's writing this. Please remember Paul has suffered, he says, more than any of his counterparts in his lifetime. He was martyred for his faith. He never trivializes his own suffering. He says, yeah, it's light and momentary, but only in comparison to what he's getting to next. Now, all the talk of glory by Paul and Romans isn't trivializing human suffering. Matter of fact, I think it's doing the opposite. I think it's honoring what you're going through because Paul knows your soul is so precious to God and what you bear is so weighty that only the promise of this can deal with it now. He said, okay, Morgan, all right, I get it. Paul's not trivializing human suffering, but let's just be honest. The glorified bit, the heaven bit, that's like a consolation prize. As in, your life sucked here. You know, one day it'll be better. Suck it up, buttercup, right? That's, that's not it either. What's Paul getting at with this word glorified? I love this. In the Greek, the word means this. To cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest, to appear and acknowledge, to cause the dignity and worth of some person to become manifest. Paul's saying that one day, here's what he's saying, in one day, in a moment, your full story will be revealed. Your true dignity, the worth of who you are and what you have been through will be revealed in a moment of victory so sweet. It'll work backwards and transform the past so that you'll see in that moment everything you've ever been through 
would be worth it. It'd been worth it. Last week, our oldest son, oldest son, senior in high school, won the state championship for high school basketball. I'll tell you a story. High school basketball for private schools. It was, of course, amazing. Uh, he had transferred from his old school into a, a new school just for his senior year, and they won it all. It was on the news last weekend. You may have caught it. Depending on which poll you read, uh, they defeated the number one team in state in the semifinal. Blew them out, actually. Then they were behind in the championship game. Two minutes to go. And they came from behind. Won the whole deal. It's incredible. But that's not what made that moment so meaningful to him or to us. What made it meaningful was something else. And he gave me permission to share this with you. Like a lot of you last year, maybe today, and if the survey is right, then maybe a lot of us now, our son was really unhappy. Really unhappy. Not in a good place. We were actually worried about him and his mental state as his parents. He is a, normally a happy kid, outgoing, social, extrovert, all that. Been ground down by the world like a lot of kids, feeling real bad, bad and down from the isolation, from sickness, from uh, the, the online school. He's an athlete. His basketball season the year before was terrible. All the games canceled left and right. Teammates getting sick. The team underperformed. And I'll just graciously put it like this, a highly discouraging and demotivating environment. And at the lowest moment, lowest moment, actually in the middle of the ice storm last year, remember that February last year, the power goes off in the Stevens home. In the dark, he looks at me and says, he picked this moment. It's like he couldn't take it anymore. He said, dad, I don't want to play sports anymore. Nothing basketball, but not even, I'm not going to play my senior year. This is from a kid whose dream has been from the time he's a kid to play in maybe, maybe something in college. And so we weren't sure what to do. Finished the school year out. And last summer when a friend suggested he transfer, consider another school, Carrie and I, we prayed about it, talked it over with him at length and said yes. And this all literally happened the week before school started. And he transfers in and goes, goes from not even going to play his senior year to winning the state championship. And so when the final horn sounded and he had won the whole thing, of course, along with a great team, teammates, our family was experiencing it a bit differently than everyone else. Carrie and I, we looked at each other and we smiled and we knew what he had been through made the victory sweeter. What he endured last year, the broken foot, the lack of confidence, the challenges with the environment, the discouragement, the disillusionment with life only made it better. All the darkness did was made what he got this year better. We never would have chosen it. Of course, you never would for you or for your kids, but you couldn't have written a better story. Pastor Wendell, a student pastor said, they should make like a 30 for 30 about it on ESPN. <laughs> Listen, the championship wasn't a consolation prize. Not a make up for it. No, no, no. It worked backward. See that? To make the whole thing transformed and give him a different perspective on maybe why he had gone through all that he had gone through. And now his full dignity, in a way, is restored. And this is Paul, what Paul is saying for you today in your own way. He's saying that one day, who you have been all along, no matter the very real bad things that happen to you, the garbage you go through, that one day in a moment, you will be glorified, revealed your full dignity, your true worth. It'll all come to pass and come to life. And what you receive in that moment will be sweeter and richer for what you go through now. When you see Jesus face to face, you'll understand what you receive in his presence. Come on. It'll vindicate what you've been through. Can't understand it now. May not make sense in the moment, but when the final buzzer goes off and you pass into the presence of God, it will. 
Why can you be happy? Because your best things are yet to come. Fyodor Dostoevsky puts it like this. He said, quote, I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for. That in the world's finality, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that's been shed, that it will make it not just possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. That's glorification. If you're a Christian today, no matter whether you're in South Sudan, Eastern Ukraine, Central Texas, these things are yours in the gospel. Why can you be happy? Come on. Because your bad things turn out for good. Your good things can never be taken from you. Your best things are yet to come. Like the hymn says, oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him. Now all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory right now beneath the cleansing flood. I hope you can say amen to this. Let me take a moment, pray for us. God, we thank you today for all these things that are ours in the gospel. They seem too good to be true. They're not fair. We, we know this, but yet they're ours. That's how good you are. Lord, I'm praying in whatever way our hearts need to, they can take flight in this moment and be lifted up above the doom scrolling, the bad news, the difficulties, the pain, sickness. Lord, good things can't be taken away. But truly good and truly last, it can't be taken. And our best things are yet to come. We thank you for loving us, holding us, and keeping us in Jesus' name. We pray these things. Amen. Amen. Pastor Corey, would you come? Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.